We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. And now, an ad from Dad. All right. Save money on car insurance when you bundle home and auto with Progressive. Can I take these off? All right. What is this? This looks good. Wow. That's well made. Where did you get this? I'm talking to you with the hair. Yeah, where did you get this? It's good stuff. That's solid. That's not veneer. That's solid stuff. Progressive can't save you from becoming your parents, but we can save you money when you bundle home and auto. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company affiliates and other insurers. Discounts not available in all states or situations. This is the Gator Nation Football Podcast, powered by Campus Insiders, with your hosts, Alan Williams and James DiVirgilio. This place is an insane asylum in the swamp! Oh, now we know we're just a bunch of average stiffs. Welcome to episode six. After a most frustrating and sad weekend, the Gators' streak against Tennessee ends at 11. I'm James DiVirgilio alongside Alan Williams. We are going to break down every facet of this game and answer all the possible questions that we've been thinking about, that you've been thinking about, that we've been getting, hearing, or seeing to try to understand exactly what happened on Saturday. We're going to bring in Kiwan Ratliff, one of our favorite guests from last year, to get his thoughts on what went right and wrong with the defense and the team in general, and then we'll turn our attention toward the- Let's say you just bought a house. Bad news is, you're one step closer to becoming your parents. You'll proudly mow the lawn. Ask if anybody noticed you mowed the lawn. Tell people to stay off the lawn. Compare it to your neighbor's lawn. And complain about having to mow the lawn again. Good news is, it's easy to bundle home an auto through Progressive and save on your car insurance. Which, of course, will go right into the lawn. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company affiliates and other insurers. Discount not available in all states or situations. This week's opponent, Vanderbilt, where we'll spend time with the voice of the Commodores, Joe Fisher, as he gets us ready for that game. James, we thought we would get a lot of answers about this team coming in this weekend. Played not great competition heading to Tennessee. We thought we'd know a lot more. But I feel like we just ended up with a lot more questions. How are you feeling after that really tumultuous game? So many questions, so much frustration, so much so much anger. I've spent more time than I want to admit thinking about this loss. It's the largest uh, loss the Gators have had, you know, blown lead since Miami in 2003. And I was at that game. We blew a 33-10 to 10 lead in the third quarter. Uh, Brock Berlin ran to the student section and gave us the Gator Chomp throat slash. And, and that just, that was awful. This was more awful 
in my opinion, more awful than that game because we had a first half that sort of built up all this excitement. We're celebrating, we're excited. And then you just collapse in epic fashion where Tennessee scores 38 unanswered points against you. It was almost unfathomable. And now we sit here and say, is our defense terrible? Uh, Is our play calling terrible? Are our coaches terrible? Is everything terrible? Are we good? Are we bad? We don't know. Now we have to see more data points. Unfortunately, we don't know yet who this team is. The first half was so fun. So many high moments. It's like a roller coaster, you know. Callaway fumble, goal line stand, touchdowns, great throws by Appleby. And the second half just felt like you were falling off a cliff and you kept waiting to land and you just kept falling and falling and falling. Oh, man, that was rough. I know it was super disappointing for Gator Nation. We're going to get into... All of that, and really, I think, dissect what went wrong. Do a little autopsy on that second half. But before we can get there, let's talk about what went right in the first half. Great first half for the Gators overall. Going to halftime, leading 21-3. to What were you impressed by the team in the first half? When I think of the proper narrative to, to think of this game, the first half is, is a tale of two different situations. And we'll start with the offense. So the offense comes out, and everyone has questions about Appleby. You heard on the podcast last week that I thought Appleby was going to be a very, very solid passer. Very strong arm. Guy could really sling it. Uh, The question was going to be turnovers. Well, he comes out and delivers, and he delivers in a big, big way. Connections of 51, 43, and 36 yards. Those are more downfield connections than we had in the first three games combined. We're lighting the world on fire. We generate 300 yards of offense, put up 21 points which most Gator fans would have told you was enough to win this game. So you're thinking, wow, we're firing on all cylinders. We're running the ball really well. The offensive line is blocking really well. We have Tennessee on their heels. Could not have been much better on the offensive side of the ball. The flip side of that narrative is the defense. So the defense held Dobbs to under 100 yards passing, held Tennessee to under 50 yards rushing, but it didn't quite feel right. They moved the ball more than I think I would have thought they did. They certainly had the ball inside the red zone three different times. They had the ball inside the five-yard line twice. Um, so you were a little bit uneasy about that. But all in all, you're thinking, hey, 21-3 to three going into half is about as good as it gets. Yeah, I mean, thought we would survive their best punches. You know, we got fortunate that they dropped all those passes, which was maybe the key moment for them in the first half. I, yeah, I was so impressed by Austin Appleby. Like, those weren't just productive throws. Those were beautiful throws down the sideline. Two to Kyle, one to Cleveland, our first Tyree Cleveland siding. I thought the running backs ran hard. Jordan Scarlett getting some tough yards, picking up first downs. And we were moving, like, even when we ran that screen pass to Cronkite, getting a touchdown, it looked like everything we were calling was working. And even though the defense wasn't, like, playing lights out and they're moving the ball more than we thought they would, it was like, okay, well, we're up 21 to three. There's no way. Like, they're going to be able to climb that hill if we do anything on offense. And that wasn't really the case. Um, let's go ahead and dive in here on the second half. Uh, if you had to pin this on coaches or players, where would you lay the blame? I'm going to put it 95% on the coaches. And I don't typically or always do that. I think that if you're doing your job as a coach – it essentially will fall on the players. And that and that's the goal. And not in a bad way, but you put them in the, in the best possible position to succeed. And if they are unable to succeed, it's because the other team is better than you. And that's okay. 
Every week you play a game and somebody's going to win and someone's going to lose. But you don't ever want it as a coach to be because you did not put your players in the best possible position to win. So for me, I'm going to put it on the coaches and I'm going to get into exactly why I feel that way. But how do you feel about it? Yeah, I'd maybe lean a little more, I don't know, I think quite 50-50, but there was a lot of poor execution in the second half on what we were actually asking them to do. And, you know, it's tough because we put our players in, you know, sometimes challenging positions on defense. Um, but there's some breakdowns along the offensive line that I think we're going to get to. Um, but, yes, I do think this is ultimately a coaching fa- failure if I had to go one or the other. Um, and let's start with our offensive play calling. It seemed super vanilla to me. Like, we stopped doing the things that were made us successful. It looked like maybe we went into the halftime tournament three. It was like, hey, you know what? This defense is incredible. There's no way they're going to score points. Let's, um, you know, get a little conservative here and hold on to this lead. I was pretty disappointed the fact that we weren't taking shots downfield. We weren't letting Appleby, um, you know, really pick apart what I think is a suspect secondary. Right, and it's always important to look at what the defense is, is giving you. And we talked a lot last year about game theory, and here comes another uh, James game theory session because I think it's really important when you look at a guy like Bill Belichick of the Patriots. He probably understands football game theory better than anyone else. It's one of the reasons he's so successful. I think we saw a situation on Saturday where our coaches exhibited a, a non-existent knowledge of game theory. They probably have some level of game theory knowledge, whether they, they understand what that means. It was not on display on Saturday. And I don't want to start looking at the offense. So you go into halftime, and McElwain admits in his own press conference today, which was good to hear, that Tennessee was moving the ball and felt like, they, you know, as a staff, they felt like they probably should have had more points than they had. So you enter in halftime thinking, Tennessee's moving the ball. So we need to do something to get a stop. Well, Tennessee comes out in the second half and, and moves the ball yet again and winds up you know, throwing a pick because we hit Dobbs' arm. So we're in an ideal situation. There's 10 minutes left in the game. We've got the football. We're up 21 to 3. Out comes your offense. Now, two things you got to think of if you're a Florida offensive coordinator. One, what is Tennessee going to do to try to stop Florida from abusing us the way they did in the first half? Well, right there, you can watch it on film. You can watch it live in person. They're going to bring an eighth man into the box. They did not want us to run. So this is a Tennessee defense that is missing their two best linebackers and their best cornerback. And what do they do? They load the box to stop the run. They basically signal to Doug Nussmeyer and Jim McElwain, we are going to stop the run. If you want to beat us, you're going to have to stay aggressive. And we come out and go, run, 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 punt. So now Tennessee is starting to feel it. They're believing it. They're applying pressure. We're becoming conservative. We're also doing the wrong thing based upon what the defense is giving to you. Defense is telling you throw the ball. They're telling you we're going to play man-to-man. They're telling you that's a matchup we should win, and we run the ball into the teeth of an eight-man front. It's seven offensive linemen versus eight defenders. Not a mathematical matchup you want. And that's where it begins, and it pretty much continues. So we go on the next several drives in this game, much the same. We go pass incomplete, run, sack, run, run, sack, run, pass, complete, sack, interception. That's what that looks like. On virtually every single one of those plays, there were eight men in the box. And the times there weren't, Tennessee knew we were going to pass. So we were literally running the wrong play into the wrong defensive formation every single play of the second half. They knew what we were doing. They were accurately predicting exactly how we were going to run the plays on offense. And you could feel that momentum wave building and building and building and building and building. 
Whereas what they should have been doing was saying, if Tennessee wants to walk an eighth man in the box, we were going to throw three straight balls down the field. We're going to run deep hitches. We're going to run go routes. We're going to run deep crossing routes. And you need to keep them off balance because our offensive line really, really gets manhandled when teams know they can pass. And all day long, Sharp, number yes. 78, had a rough, rough day in the second half. He could not guard Derek Barnett. Yeah, he just could not guard him. He was running right past him, half of them even touching him. And Appleby was basically running from a non-existent pocket within the first one second of taking a snap every single play of the second half. It was really frustrating to watch our offense go three and out that many times when we had so much success in the first half. And Tennessee basically, like you said, I think they started gambling. They're like, we've got to do something here. And we're going to hope that they go conservative is exactly what we did. Now, on the other side of that, if we come out slinging the ball and, you know, throw some picks or, you know, are going three and out throwing the ball, people are going to be screaming, why weren't they running the ball? I don't know what the mindset of our coaches was. I think they maybe had too much faith in this defense. And it was, that's not completely understandable given how well the defense had played in the first three games. Um, But I want to talk a little bit more about Appleby here. I think... I like what I saw of him for the most part. The interception was really poor, but at that point in the game, it felt like we were sliding down the hill and he probably um, was just pressed into feeling like he had to make a play. And they, you're right, they didn't give him any time. The offensive line did not respond. But ultimately, I do think it was the coaches going into a shell conservatively. Um, yeah, I was extremely impressed with Appleby. I mean, everything we talked about last week, he did. He finished the game with 296 passing yards. And if you recall, when Luke Del Rio threw for plus 300 against Kentucky, it was the first time that a Florida quarterback had done that in like 150 years, you know? Uh, And then you look at Appleby. He comes in on the road against Tennessee as a new player to the team. And had we not gone into a complete shell, he might have thrown for 450 yards in that game. He really might have. And... It was a shame. I feel like one of the sad things about this game is that Appleby's performance is probably going to get a little bit lost in the wash because he threw that that one interception. Otherwise, he managed the game exceptionally well. He scored enough points for us to win the game. And oh, by the way, he dropped three incredible dimes in the first half. As good of a throw as you can see three different times um, from a quarterback at the college level. And in the second half, he didn't really have much of a chance. And he tried to make a play when he shouldn't have. He should have thrown it away and lived another day. But the frustration level had obviously built to that point. So the story on offense to me was it wasn't the players executing. I know you can hear that, hey, we should be able to block for those plays. We should be able to gain 40 yards. But once the defense has countered you and moved eight men into the box, it's now time for you to go to the next level, which is, hey, you're daring us to pass. That's where the weakness in the defense now is. It's time to pass the ball. And we did not do that. We stayed very vanilla. And we paid the price for it. And the yeah. momentum, you could feel it shifting. Tennessee could feel it shifting. And, and to the aggressor, want the spoils. And, and to me, that's on the coaches. You know, If you want to lose, you want to lose doing the right thing against the right kind of defense. Take the matchup they give you and go for it. And if you can't execute it, your team's not good enough, that's the right way to lose. Don't lose by doing the wrong strategy at the wrong time. Yeah, take some courage with a backup quarterback on the road with a you know, 21-3 lead to come out throwing the ball. But that would have been the right thing to do with the way that Tennessee countered. And they countered well. Give them credit for applying pressure and then on offense making some plays. Let's turn over to the defensive side of the ball. It seems it still seems crazy to me that, you know, despite our offensive going three offense going three and out, that our defense couldn't 
even slow them down from the middle of the third quarter to the middle of the fourth quarter. I mean, they were scoring on huge chunk plays. What happened to us out there that, you know, that we just fell apart, crumpled, really? Well, there's probably two main things. One is tactical with how we were playing defense, and the second is momentum. And I'll start with the momentum part. So in soccer, the worst lead to have is a 2 nothing lead. It's the worst lead in soccer. And you think, well, why isn't it one nothing? Well, because when you're up 2 nothing, you tend to start becoming very conservative. You try to play protective and not aggressive. You're not trying to continue to score. You're sort of just shelling in. A 21 nothing lead in football is the equivalent of a 2 nothing need in soccer. I guess you can ask Ole Miss that. Now, right. You typically, yeah, you typically win these games. But with a young team, third youngest team in the country, on the road, hostile environment, um, you know, you're setting yourself up for failure. So the defense feels what's going on with the offense. They're staying on the field. They feel this tremendous momentum shift occurring. And then Tennessee comes out and counters by playing the majority of the second half in a five-wide receiver set. Now, they rarely ever had five wide receivers in the field, but they would almost always run their running back and or their tight end from the backfield out on a route immediately. No chip block, just a route. There are five guys going out. From film study, you can see that they are clearly targeting either Duke Dawson or Jared Davis. And Duke Dawson gave up 220 yards, I think, of those 319 almost by himself. That's an exaggeration. But there are five plays distinctly where they lined up on Duke, and he was beat. The most frustrating thing for me is we came into the week saying Dobbs is not a good passer. I still believe that. This was not a step forward for Dobbs. What happened was we allowed Dobbs to get a pre-snap read on a read he liked. Man-to-man coverage. Man-to-man coverage. He picked out, that's Duke Dawson. That's what this play is designed to do, is to put either Josh Malone or the tight end or the running back on Duke Dawson in a favorable matchup where there's no help in the middle of the field. And that's what they generated time and time and time again And they were able to consistently complete these passes, primarily because 9 out of 10 of Dobbs' throws were to his first read. Right away, first read, throw the ball. First read, throw the ball. A guy like Dobbs is going to struggle when he sees zone. And the previous three teams that Tennessee played against, Ohio, Virginia Tech, and Appalachian State, played almost exclusively zone defense. Almost every single play. They also changed their fronts. So to put a bow on this, we had a front seven that didn't change our front. We lined up in a nickel, four down linemen front, virtually the entire second half. We didn't disguise blitzes, and we didn't stunt. So right at the line of scrimmage, you have nothing creative going on. You follow that up by running press man every single play. Tennessee knows exactly what you're going to do, and they've proven that they can beat it, and we do not adjust. We don't go to zone. We don't do anything to come out of it. So now you've got the players in a situation where you're asking Duke Dawson to cover Josh Malone, and he can't do it. He's already proven that he can't do it, And rather than adjust and put Duke in a position that's better for him, we stay the same. And they continue to punish us to the tone of four touchdown passes from Dobbs and a running touchdown. Five straight offensive touchdowns out of an offense from Tennessee that is not that good. So to me, that's on the coaches. It was pretty remarkable to watch them carve us up. And it was so frustrating because we're tantalizingly close to getting enough pressure on him to affect him. Several of the throws he made give him credit. As the pocket was collapsing in on him, he made a nice throw, and his receiver started making catches that they weren't making in the first half. And, you know, I can totally understand this from the point of view of the coaches in this sense, is that we've made our money playing press man. We have some the best secondary people in the country. And Duke Dawson, you're right, he's great at that nickel spot because a little bit of a hybrid safety kind of corner player can help him run can handle some of the bigger guys, tight ends over the middle. But if you match him up with an elite wide receiver, and Josh Malone, maybe he's an elite wide receiver, he's got elite speed, I think. 
that's a difficult matchup for him. And things start going wrong. Tease Tabor falls down on a, you know, a, you know, I guess a one-on-one coverage on the outside. Guesses wrong on the route, slips. That guy makes an incredible catch. If Tease doesn't fall down right there, he probably breaks that up. And things just start snowballing. And I will say, in college football, I'm a huge believer in momentum. Now, certain analytics community, which I believe in, would say momentum doesn't exist. I would ask them to watch this game and see just that. I know this was a tidal wave of momentum. It was crazy watching this in that really hostile environment. Our team got overwhelmed. And that feels like I'm making an excuse for them, but I think that was a big factor. If you just look at the X's and O's, you're probably going to come up short. That that was just a huge momentum swing, and we were never able to even get our footing to start to claw our way back into the game until it was too late. Yeah, and that that's the right analysis of it, and that's why I blame this on the coaches, or if you will, the generals. When things are going on in the battlefield, it's up to them to change the tenor. It's up to them to do something different. And it doesn't have to work. You could be wrong, but you have to prove to the other team that, hey, we're going to do something different. We're going to put a different thought in the back of your mind. And you're not just going to get to see the same thing every single time. The definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over and over again. And that's what we did. And it's frustrating to me because we are a better team than Tennessee in my mind. And if we had managed the tactical situation correctly in the second half of that game, I don't see how we lose. Um, Sure, play press man. They go 21-10. You start to look at it and say, you know what? They've dropped five passes. They've thrown the ball for 200 yards, which is more than Dobbs throws all season long. You probably had it. Let's let's mix it up. Let's do something different. Let's give them a three-man front. Let's drop eight guys. Let's do anything different than the same thing we're doing. It just didn't happen. And that's as a fan, that's so frustrating to watch. And on the flip side, you had it happening on the offensive side of the ball too. So it was a double whammy. Neither side of the ball was doing anything strategically correctly. And if I want to lose, I'm okay with doing the right thing strategically and losing. That's fine with me. But this game has left so much frustration with me because it just feels like one massively large self-inflicted wound where we let an inferior passing quarterback do the exact thing he wanted to do over and over and over again. And now we're sitting here with this loss that feels unnecessary. Yeah, it's really frustrating. And it what's, I don't know, kind of crazy about this game is there a scenario where we win walking away? When we had the ball third and one, middle of the third quarter, and we get stuffed, you know, the play almost works. We're real close. If we get a couple more first downs and we put even a field goal up there, I feel like the game might go differently. That feels, you know, kind of wild to say that considering the outcome. But we weren't far away, and that's what feels so frustrating, I think, to the probably the players, the coaches, the fans, is that – it it almost mystifies us that we lost this game. We're like, how is that possible? But look, when you break it down, you're right. Momentum plus no tactical adjustments equals getting blown out by rival. It would you have ever thought coming into this game that we would give up 38 points and lose this game? It felt like that was inconceivable. There's no chance that that was going to happen. It still feels inconceivable, and that's why it's so frustrating. I thought this was an elite and special defensive unit, which. It's not. You can't put that result out there and be that way. Although I still think it could have been with the proper game plan. And and to kind of put the cliff notes on this, maybe you're thinking, hey, well, what would James have done differently? Well, I, I believe in the school of Bill Belichick, which means you can change your entire philosophy from week to week. Now, in college, it has to be more basic. This is not the NFL where you're going to put in complicated, different, they don't multiple have fronts. Times. You don't have the time to do it. You don't have the know-how. But it doesn't take much. Dobbs 
is not a good reader of the field. You're talking about putting in basic cover two, basic cover three, a few situations where linebackers come down, cover back. Nothing that's rocket science. And that was clearly on film. But we stuck to it and said, hey, we're the best team in the country. We play a press man. That's what we're going to do. And sometimes that kind of hubris can get you in trouble. And I look, I, I like the trash talk. I think it's fun. But strategically, don't become naive strategically and buy into your own players' trash talk and think we're just going to line up and play you, man, all day long when we get torched for 38 points. And, and do you think a lot of this question was being thrown out after the game? McWin was at Alabama. A 21-3 lead is almost certainly never going to be blown. I can't recall in that Auburn game if they blew a lead that was that large, the one they famously lost. Cam Newton, it was a pre- it was about that. but Sizable lead. But, but that's, that's the only one, right, yeah. that you can think of. And it was Cam Newton, who's yeah. a, a phenom. So outside of that, at Bama, you're normally going to wind up winning that game like 40-3. You just tighten, tighten, tighten the game's yeah. over. I wonder, do you think that maybe McIlwain was exhibiting part of that mindset? He's thinking we have the best defense. We're just going to run, 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 and, and win? It was so hard uh, to... I think anticipate for them because they probably thought, all right, we're going to get a little more pressure. They're going to have to throw the ball a bit more than they're comfortable. That's going to make them more one dimensional. Our defense will probably play better than it did in the first half. And so, you know what, let's come out. And they were having success running the ball in the first half. And it was just happened so fast. There wasn't a lot of time. I think in the middle of that game that were, it's really only like about 10 minutes of game time where that collapse took place. And so that's, maybe where they went wrong is like they didn't adjust fast enough Um, because they probably thought, Hey, if this defense is as good as we think it is, they're going to like, like the Alabama and the Connor, they're just going to squeeze you and squeeze you. I mean, Bama starts off these games, right? You know, 17, zero. And it's like 17, zero for a long time. And then all of a sudden it's 40 to zero. Wow. I don't know. I'm still at a loss for exactly how this went down, but it did. And we watched it unfold. It was pretty tough. Let me ask you about special teams. This was maybe the hidden area where we got really crushed. Um, thoughts on our performance there? Yeah, probably not so hidden <laughs> this particular game. You have three penalties where you uh, don't even get a punt snap off and you lose five yards. You have false starts, which is which is ridiculous. I mean, false starting on a, on a punt, yeah, not too difficult there. You have Callaway, who all of a sudden lost his collective mind. Yeah, what went wrong with him? Callaway's played on the road before. He's played in the SEC championship. This is not a freshman. He just... Forgets the most basic rule of football that you teach a kid in Pop Warner in middle school is, hey, if your heels are on the 10 or on the 8 or whatever yard line I start you on, if you take one step backwards, you let the ball go. That's what you do. And and to do it twice. Inexplicable. Once is bad enough, but twice? Yeah, crazy. Two times? Crazy that he let that happen. You know, the one time is a little bit like, all right, maybe he lost himself on the field, tough environment. He hasn't maybe gotten as many reps because he's been hurting. And I was like, I actually said this out loud. Well, at least we'll know he'll never do that again after we escaped with them getting no points. You know, put us in bad down and distance, like or not bad down distance, bad field position. But then to watch him do that again, I like he was on drugs or something. I don't know what could have possibly compelled him to do that. This guy always felt really sure-handed, so to watch him drop it was crazy. And he was always just so reliable. Like, you know, he maybe wasn't the most dynamic punt returner, although really great. But you always felt really comfortable he's going to do the right things. It's not Chris Rainey back there muffing punts and doing crazy things and fair catching when he shouldn't. I don't know. That was really tough to watch. And the penalties were, I don't know. The punt team shouldn't be false starting, even on the road. And that they have to get that cleaned up. 
Yeah, a lot of questions for Greg Nord this week. I'm sure the message boards are are hot with vitriol for, for what's gone on. Special teams was awful, awful last year. And this year we're coming in and, and on a road in the biggest game that we've played to date. One of the biggest games we're going to play all season. And that was an F-level yeah. performance. Then, Kickoff return, punt return, coverage. Every single facet of special teams we got owned in by Tennessee. And that that is is uncalled for because that's equal talent on equal talent. That should at least be a push. But we were dominated in that facet. And uh, area, I was looking forward to seeing us. We finally made an adjustment, taking Brandon Powell off kick return, getting a guy I was wanting them to put back there, the Michael Pirine, and then he never got a chance to return it because their kicker was crushing it out the back of the end zone. Um, and so, yeah, no chance for redemption on any of those things. Rough go for the Gators in that phase. Um, okay. Let me bring us to maybe a key question here. Is it time to hit the panic button? Are you freaking out? Or are you not freaking out? That's a great question because I, I don't know the answer to that question. I'm not freaking out. I, I'm I'm really disappointed in the coaching staff. I don't know if it's systemic and it's going to continue forever because we don't have enough data to know that yet. McElwain's an aggressive personality. It's a little bit counter his nature to to sort of go into a shell like that. But when I look at the totality, this is two years in a row now where he, he chose he chose Treon Harris over Will Greer, which was just fantastically the wrong decision. Uh, then Treon Harris comes in and he was unwilling to seemingly do anything strategically different than than he was doing, which, look, you couldn't have rescued Treon, but that's a data point. He wasn't thinking outside the box there. Then we come into this most important game, and he and he pulls his best Will Muschamp impression. I mean, he just takes all of the air out of the ball and admits as much on his uh, Monday presser saying, yeah, you know, in his analogy, we ran too much of the mom and pop plays and not the cousins and aunts and uncles plays, meaning that they just stuck with what worked in the first half. And, and I thought he was a lot more of a thinker like that. You've heard me on the podcast say that I feel like he's more of a Belichick mindset. He uses the two tight ends. He wants to be multiple. And to see us revert back to basic level one conservative thinking was frustrating. But I don't. this is not his philosophy. So hopefully the coaching staff says we can never make this kind of mistake again. This is something, let this be a learning point for us. This can never happen again. We mismanage the situation. And if that's the case, I'll feel good. I do have long-term questions for our defensive philosophy regarding this unit and Jeff Collins. Jeff Collins is a guy that runs zone. He ran a lot of zone at Mississippi State. He is not like married to cover one man. But obviously, he felt like cover one man with this unit was the way to go. And look, it had been fantastic. I wonder if this will encourage us to be more multiple. Because every team we play saw the same tape we did. They saw, hey, look, we can create one-on-one matchups with Duke Dawson and Jared Davis, and we can win those matchups. We have to do something different. If we roll out against Vanderbilt, who's not a very good passing team, but then eventually LSU or anyone else, in the same press one the whole game, and we see Duke Dawson getting beat, without an adjustment, then I will press the panic button. So it's too early to say. There are questions for concern I'll have to watch. I'm hoping they saw the same thing we did, and they're like, this is a lesson. We're not going to do this again. And oh, by the way, maybe we should be a little bit more creative on defense. Maybe we should change our fronts up sometimes. Maybe we shouldn't just be so vanilla with regards to what we're showing the quarterback on the other side of the field. Yeah, there's a lot of pain and frustration out there in Gator Nation. So I've heard from people who are hitting the panic button I will say this, like I, I would exercise caution and not calling for everyone to be fired and let's burn the whole thing to the ground and that kind of thing. Like I said before, there was a 
a narrative where we win this game going away pretty easily. Um, if a few things go right, or we make a few small adjustments, or maybe they drop a couple more passes or whatever. Uh, and this is again, college football on the road. Um, you know, it's a tough place to play. Neyland stadium is a tough place to play. Teams lose games inexplicably all the time. There are top 10 teams who are like, they have everything to play for and they get upset. And you're like, what happened? I'm thinking in some of our championship years, you know, USC losing to UCLA. How did that happen? Who knows? Even that 08 championship team losing to Ole Miss at home. Like you still look back like that's such a questionable result. And not comparing this team talent-wise to that team. That's not what I'm trying to get at. But just to say teams lose games. It is so hard to go undefeated. Stuff happens. You make mistakes. So I'm not ready to hit the panic button at all. Uh, but I will say it. the way this game went down makes me feel frustrated and still have a lot of questions. You know, you would have thought, okay, there's definitely a scenario where we lose this game. Backup quarterback on the road. And we lose 17 to 10. We just couldn't put up enough points. But our defense getting gashed like it is. That's supposed to be the strength of this team, the bedrock of how we play. And for them to get torched, man, that that makes me feel iffy going forward. Yeah, our passing defense versus their passing offense was the premier matchup that we had a massive advantage on. And that's essentially what lost us the game. Dobbs in the second half was 9 of 12 for 235 yards and four touchdowns. Now, I can assure you, you can watch Dobbs the rest of the season. He will not duplicate that stat line because everyone else will play zone against him, primarily because they don't have our personnel. But that's what makes it, like you said, so frustrating in the moment. I still haven't digested it fully. It will probably frustrate me for for a time to come because my personality type is such that if I, like we talk about, and you're the same way, if I want to lose, I want to lose or lose to a better opponent. Mm -hmm. And you cannot tell me Tennessee is better than us. And that is therefore a frustrating situation. And on top of that, when you go up 21 points, and your win percentage, according to the gurus of the SPN, which this is like the dumbest thing ever they do, right? It's like 94%. But regardless, you blow a lead like this once every 15, 20 years in football. It does not happen often. And, and so to blow to it to your hated rival. Really bury Tennessee, right? So then, this could have set this program back yes. for years. They lose this game. They go into a tailspin. We talked about that before, especially getting crushed by us, which was on the table. Maybe Butch Jones gets fired. Who knows who they hire? It's like an inflection point for their program. And having a chance to bury your rival like that and to not do it, it's like in your fingers and it's slipping. Oh, man, this is going to be right. This is going to be one we talk about for a long time. All right, let's move on and talk to our friend Kiwan. Let's hear what he has to say about this game. Let's welcome to the program, friend of the program, Kiwan Ratliff. He was a Florida All-American team captain, inductee to the UF Hall of Fame, NFL player, and fantastic X's and O's guy. Kiwan, great to have you on the show today. I appreciate you having me. Well, Kiwan, let's go ahead and jump right in. Everybody's wondering, love to have your thoughts on this game overall, and maybe even just jump right in. What went wrong on defense for us in the second half? Uh, honestly, it was. I think uh, the thing that went wrong was a lack, lack of communication. Uh, you could see on a few of those big plays that those weren't guys just being beat by somebody better than them. Those were guys being beat by being in the wrong position. So I think most of the times when you have a defense that's as athletically gifted as we do, the only way you beat, get beat is by beating yourselves, and communication is the easiest way to beat yourself. 
Would you say that this loss is more on the coaches or more on the players? I'm never a guy that would put a loss totally on a player or a coach. I think both parts played equally in it. I mean, the coaches, you know, I'm pretty sure after watching film, they feel they could have done better, and the players as well. So regards to defensive style, the previous three opponents Tennessee had played ran a lot of zone defense against them, and they also mixed up their fronts. It looked like we were primarily playing press man, the same four-man front with an occasional blitz. Do you think anything should have been done differently once Tennessee had proven they got the matchups they wanted against Duke Dawson or against Jared Davis to to change what they were seeing? Or, or were you fine with us basically staying in the same defensive alignment for most of the game? I mean, uh, hindsight is always twenty twenty. Uh I feel like when you have guys on the outside like Quincy and Jalen, a lot of times it's it's easy as a coordinator to get focused on, all right, I can lock those guys up, and now we have flexibility with the nine other players on the defense. But sometimes once those guys get get the upper hand and they start fix, figuring out mismatches in the slot or at linebacker, at tight end, at running back, or – or just anywhere, then now you come pretty predictable. But if our identity is a press man team, we should be able to play press man against the best of the best. And Tennessee is obviously one of the best of the best. And they, like you said, they they, they had a few matchups where they got Jared Davis one-on-one on the tight end through the seam, and they got, I don't know if it was Duke or I don't know if it was the safety's fault on the wheel route to the running back. It seemed like it might have been Duke, but – who knows, except for those 11 guys that were on the field. And, I mean, they just, bottom line, they made a few more plays than we did. I don't feel like the defense played as bad as it looked because they were on the field so much. The offense went three and out, I think, four or five times in a row, and the greatest defense in the world gets tired. So, at some point, the offense had to pick up a few first downs just to let those guys stay on the sideline, catch their breaths, Make a, make a few adjustments, make some changes, and then come back out and regroup. What did you think as a defensive player of the offensive play calling in the second half? I felt like they they kind of said, okay, we got it. We had, we put enough points on the board. Our defense is playing great. Let's put it on the defense's shoulders to go out and finish this game off. Instead of saying we're going to keep our foot on this on the gas pedal and try to put up sixty. I mean, anytime you start playing conservative. That's what gets you beat. Anytime you start trying to say, well, all right, well, let's not put him, put anything on his plate, too much on his plate on Austin Applebee's plate. But if you remember, early in the game, they came out and right away we took a shot deep. Things like that puts defensive backs on their heels, put defensive coordinators on their heels. And I feel like if we could have kept doing that in the second half, even when they got the momentum going, took a shot or two, even if we didn't complete those shots, it's in the back of those guys' minds that, hey, they're going to try us. So now they may have called their defense a little bit differently, and those guys may have played a little bit differently. So we've got two cornerbacks who are pretty high profile, Tease Tabor, Quincy Wilson. As you've watched the first three games, four games, like who do you feel like is maybe putting the best stuff on tape? Well, honestly, it's it's a little bit hard to judge because Jalen has one less game under his belt. But even if you go back to watch last year, I've always said that I felt like Quincy has has, has put in the most solid effort week to week. Now, Jalen comes out, he'll give you more of those splash plays. He'll make 
or the highlight tape plays. But if you just watch who does the, who does their job, play in and play out, Quincy is doing a hell of a job on the outside. I mean, he's he's pressing. He's not getting beat. He's playing fundamentally sound. You see him playing through the hands. You see him not looking back. I mean, the things that he's doing right now at his size, I mean, is is amazing to me. But when you have a guy like Jalen on the other side, sometimes that makes guys want to step their game up because he's getting all the ink. He's getting all the, the talk. He's the one that everybody knows about. So that kind of motivates Quincy to go out and try to prove that he's on the same level, if not better. But both of those guys are 1A, 1B, uh, given any week. So looking at our safety play, specifically dealing with pass coverage, whether we're playing the nickel press man or whatever it seems to be, there doesn't seem to be a whole lot of plays being made from our safeties on any sort of pass. Is that due primarily to scheme where teams are essentially going to roll our safety off with a look off or, or a play designed to move them and then get another one-to-one matchup underneath? Or is that just due to the fact that maybe they're not able to, to make a proper read when you're running a lot of cover one style defense? I mean, we're playing in the SEC. So to ask the safety to cover a guy man-to-man, unless that safety has a corner background, it's going to be tough matchups week in and week out. You look around the conference, you don't see very many cover safeties. Most of those guys are, are hybrid safeties that are run supporters first, cover second. So for our guys to go out there and be asked to play as much man-to-man as they do, I don't think they get enough credit. Those guys are all 210, 215-pound big guys back there covering these six two, six three guys that can fly. So that's going to be a, a hard job to ask of anybody. But in the run support, they come up and they do a great job. In the disguise, they come, they go out and they do a good job. I mean, I, honestly, I think our guys had a bad half of football. And and I don't honestly think it was because they weren't good enough to make those plays. It was just the fact that sometimes when you get fatigued, mental fatigue kicks in. And now you start making some of those bonehead plays, some of those mistakes you normally wouldn't have made if you could have been on the sideline in the – Coach could have went over your keys and your tips and, and everything to look for. But when you're on the sideline, two plays, now you're standing up ready because most of them are on special teams. They're out there on that on that fourth down, on special teams, on that punt team, and turn right back around and you're back on defense. You don't have a, enough time to recollect your thoughts and, and get back grounded and go back out and be smart enough to not give up those plays. So I think a lot of those plays that they gave up last week were because of fatigue. But if you look at the, the, the three games before that, you can't pick a weak link out on that defensive side of the ball. So there's a lot in the press and even in the national media about some of the comments, a little bit of trash talk from guys on the team, especially Tabor and Wilson. How do you feel about that? Or is that like, do you like that out of them? Or is that concerning you at all? How do you feel? Honestly, I love it. That's The trash talk is 90% of the reason why I chose the University of Florida. Coach Spurrier, as the head coach, was the one who talked more trash than anybody on the team, and I loved it. So that's what, what made me gravitate towards the University of Florida. But anytime a guy goes out and say, you know, we guarantee we're going to win or we're going to beat them and or, or any type of, of confident trash talk, as a fan, as a writer, as a player, as a teammate, anything, I love it because – I, for one, I love putting the spotlight on, on you because now you have to step up and go out and play. 
if they were to come out and say, well, we're unsure, we don't know if we're going to win, or this team's look real good, so we're going to try to win, then now they would be getting talked bad about by the fans of not being sure of themselves. So I would rather a guy be overconfident and cocky and, and arrogant and go out and feel that they're going to win every game, no matter if we're 0-9 or 9-0. and And that 10th game says the same thing. We guarantee we're going to win. Let me ask you one more question about Jalen Tabor. He was in and you know, on and off the field, in and out of the locker room. Did he look right to you physically out there in the second half? I, honestly, he did to me. I, I mean, he looked he looked as he always did. It's it's just you know he he didn't have a, I don't think he had a bad game. He had a bad play, and it's going to happen. They ran a double move on him. He slipped coming out of his break. They scored. Okay, it's going to happen. It happens to the best of us. Deion Sanders got beat. It's just. At the time of the game and at the the way the game was going, it just didn't look good. But if we were up 31 to 10 at that point and he got beat, nobody would have paid attention to it. It it would have been water under the bridge. But because of the situation in the game and because of the outcome of the game, everybody's going to magnify each and every bad play and times it by three. So now you make one bad play and everybody makes you feel like you made 10 bad plays. So when you have a lead situation like we had key one and on that play, is there any merit to starting to play some more zone or something to keep passes underneath you to sort of get your get your breath back? Or is this team's identity press man and we're just going to take press man as far as it will take us wins and losses wise? Well, when you, when you get beat once or twice in that press man and you have a lead, I feel that sometimes you, you, you should come up and come out of it. Because now you don't you don't want to get your guys out there and now they're second guessing themselves. Now they're playing timid. So it's a fine line, I believe. As a coordinator, you have to call the game the same way you called it on the first series and that fourth series and that seventh series, just like on offense. If you came out taking shots deep early, you need to still continue to take shots early in the second half. You need to take shots early in the fourth quarter. And I mean and like you said, if that's our identity, then we have to stick with it. But there's nothing wrong with mixing it up and keeping that quarterback off balance because, to me, I don't think Dobbs would have been able to read a lot of those zones and make the right throw and, and been smart enough to know where to put the ball every single down for two whole, two straight quarters. So looking forward with the game this week and for the rest of the season – Let's start by what what is the mentality right now? You being an elite uh, player and an NFL player, what is a guy like like Tabor or Duke Dawson uh, thinking as they enter into practice this week, having not gotten exposed, but certainly playing a game that they probably didn't think they were capable of playing? Is it hard mentally to kind of get back to the level you were at confidence wise before? Trust me, those two guys do not lack confidence. That's that's the la- that's the least of my worries with those two guys is that they're going to come out and lack confidence. If anything, I think that those guys are going to come out and play even better this week because of last week. Now mentally, they'll be a lot more focused in the practice. Now Coach Collins won't won't have to yell and scream at practice today because those guys will be doing the yelling and screaming and making sure that each other are, are on the right page. Sometimes the best thing that can happen for a, a great unit is a bad day. And that's exactly what the defense had with a bad second half. So now they have that in the back of their mind when they go out and they're a little fatigued, they're a little tired, and, and they see guys being lazy through a few reps. Now 
it doesn't take much to get those guys back going. All you got to do is remi- remind them of that Tennessee game. So I feel like those guys will be right back to playing at the level that everybody expects them to play at this week. All right, two predictions I love to get from you. One, do you think the Gators will win the SEC East, or do you, do you think that ship has sailed? Honestly, I said it before going into the game, win, lose, or draw, we still have a chance to win the East. If you look at Tennessee's schedule and you look at our schedule, it favors us. If the biggest game for us still well, is always the next game, of course, but the Georgia game is, is even more magnified now, depending on the outcome this week with Georgia-Tennessee. But I don't think that Tennessee makes it through their four-week gauntlet that they have coming up without at least two losses in it. So if we go out and handle our business week in and week out, the East still should be ours. So looking directly to this next game up, Vanderbilt, what's the prediction for this one? We're a 10.5 point favorite on the road. What do you think? Uh, I, I, don't, I don't like to look at those, the, the point favorites. Uh, a one-point win, I'll take. But if we go out and do what we do and play how we played those first few weeks, then I feel like this game should be one that, that we should easily be able to get as long as we can go out and, and ta- tackle uh, Webb then everything else would be fine. All right. Well, Kiwan, thank you so much for being on the pod today. One of our favorite guests. Really appreciate the insight. I think Gator fans are going to be really pleased to hear your commentary on this. Thank you very much. I appreciate you for having me. Before we jump in and take a look at Vandy, let's do a little SEC roundup. James, walk us through it. Very interesting weekend in the SEC. First of all, a game I think most Gator fans really enjoyed watching, Georgia Ole Miss. Got obliterated. Annihilated. I mean, we. I said last week that I thought the SEC East was the worst division in football, and it has done nothing to disprove me, and you, that, that being a nice data point. Just not even remotely a contest. So that unlit bonfire that we said Kirby Smart was sitting on, maybe someone went and grabbed a box of matches. We'll see. I feel like they're waiting like next to the wood with like this this torch. Um, they're going to give him time, obviously. But the mentality of a Georgia fan is is they're not like thinking, oh hey, we should be losing forty five to fourteen to Ole no, Miss. You not was... fire Mark Richt to get to getting blown out by. Yikes! That was bad. Uh, a great game for a really long time where the score doesn't do it justice was Arkansas Texas A and M. A and M showed me something in this game. Feels like they're maybe the second best team in the SEC right now. And I'm glad we don't have to play them this year. Likewise. Yeah, 45-24 win, but the game was 17-17. They stopped Arkansas on the goal line two separate occasions where Arkansas yeah, that had. That was the key. The Arkansas had seven plays on one of them and four plays on the other and came away with no points in those scenarios. So Miles Garrett is terrifying. And their defensive line is, is very, very good. So interesting matchup, A&M Bama looking way, way far ahead because that defensive line is, is something else. And, and Miles Garrett obviously is out of this world. So... Interesting two games there. Some less interesting games, but this one kind of wound up being interesting. Mississippi State at UMass. And yeah. that game was really close for a long time. UMass was winning the game for yeah, a lot of the game. They looked good on offense and the highlights that I was seeing. Mississippi State struggling really hardcore with some lesser competition. Not everything right in Starkville right now. Right, so 47-35 win there. Missouri beat Delaware State 79-0 and set a bunch of offensive records. Yeah, you know... I- that gives me a little bit of a pause heading, you know, as we circle closer to this Missouri game. The fact that they're even capable of putting up that kind of offensive output is like, ooh, all right. 
Yeah, they seem to be a lot more feisty than either of us gave them credit for before the season. But yes. Georgia also seems to be even worse, and we didn't think they were going to be good. So remains to be seen. Kentucky beats the fighting Will Muschamp 17-10 to in what could only be described as a classic Will Muschamp snooze fest. Yeah, the, as someone said... They're gonna they're gonna play every game seventeen to ten or thirteen to ten and they'll just either win or lose at that score every week. <laughs> Bama, the spread covering machine, forty four point favorites against Kent State, and not surprising that they win forty yeah. nothing. Were they up like forty one in the first quarter and then that stopped? was absurd in halftime or something? And they know. still covered the spread. Nick Saban has to take care of all of his friends there. And lastly, the most interesting Ooh-wee. game for a million reasons on the plains, LSU at Auburn. Auburn escapes, maybe, is the right word, with the 18-13 win, and that results in Les Miles getting fired. Yeah, we talked about the buyout bowl, and someone got bought out. Les Miles gets fired. I wonder if the result would have actually been the other way where they lost. And as we were watching this game together, we were freaking out, because this is classic LSU Les Miles, right? That they are going to fumble and bumble their way and do everything wrong and still somehow win. It's... It's like you do the exact wrong thing and you like somehow got right. It's like, I, I don't know. It's like you shoot a gun up in the air, you know, straight up in the air. And sometimes somehow you still hit a duck or something. It's like, well, I guess you win the, <laughs> you, the result is what you wanted, but less miles. I guess you live by the sword. You die by the sword. You live by being crazy. You die by being crazy. And I feel like this was the epitome of why LSU fans want less miles fired, even though he's won 10 games every single year he won a national championship took him to another one on paper that seems amazing but it's it's maddening to watch how he manages those tactical situations and if you didn't see the game LSU wound up actually scoring a touchdown as time expired it didn't count because they didn't get the snap off but they didn't get the snap off because they had a two minutes of real time while the refs reviewed the previous play and LSU still wasn't on the field ready to snap the ball, even though they knew if the review came back a certain way, they had to snap it right away. And it's just these things that you're like, what is happening? Uh, but that was sort of where his magic ran out. And so for him, unfortunately, no more of the Mad Hatter, a fun character to yeah. follow, uh, eating grass, all the things he says and does. So we'll miss him as a person. And now there's a lot of sort of fear around what LSU is going to do with who they hire because that is such a talent-rich state. Yeah, on one hand, be careful what you wish for, LSU fans, and you could get a guy who takes your program a step back. Or if they get lucky and hire the right guy, unlocks that beast, and they become like this super dominant team that yeah. challenges Alabama every year like they want to. Petrino's out there. Tom Herman of Houston, your boy's out there. Our Bryles. Our Bryles is out there. Those names are all scary, I think, all to scary. anyone in the West. So thankfully they're not in the East, but we do play them every single year. And with that, let's transition let's do a little Vandy overview. to Vandy. It's Vandy week. It's never that exciting. It's a noon kickoff, 11 a.m. if you happen to live in that area of the world. Um, always what seems to be just like a downer week. If you beat Tennessee, you're like, great. You can't wait for the next weekend we play LSU. And this game now becomes a little bit more interesting because Vandy, surprisingly, is 2-2, two and two, which is not typical for them at this point. Close loss to South Carolina. Yeah, it could be 3-1. 13-10. They lost right there at the end. Uh, they beat Middle Tennessee State 47-24. They got obliterated by Georgia Tech 38-7. Yeah. And you kind of thought this might be the end for Derek Mason. But they fought back and had a really, really good road win last week against Western Kentucky in overtime. It was a solid team. Solid team. They're probably going to win at least seven or eight games this year. Uh, big time win for Vandy. So they're coming off some momentum. Uh, the kind of quick stats on them, they like to run the ball. 
57% of their plays are runs, 42% are passes. They got a young quarterback in Kyle Schirmer who's kind of finding his footing. Uh, nationally, ranking-wise, they're in the bottom 25% in both offense and defense, so there's not anything that sticks out to you that they're particularly good at. The two things they are better than Florida at would be turnovers per game, so they're generating just a little bit more in the turnover margin. Florida's like slightly under one turnover generated a game, and they're slightly above it. And then their penalty situation is much, much better than ours. Florida, after this past weekend, has fallen now to the bottom uh, 5% of Division One with regards to penalties per game, whereas Vanderbilt's in the top 20%. So literally two little matchups you can find that aren't generally that important in a game like this. So statistically, it's not super interesting to look at the numbers other than they almost all overwhelmingly favor Florida in every single facet. Yeah, and this is going to be an interesting game for our team. How do you feel like the team, I'm talking about the Gators here, how is their mentality heading into this Vanderbilt game after a really, really brutal loss against Tennessee? I, I don't know. I, I There's things I hate and there's things I like. So I hated the body language that went on in the second half of that game last week. There's that shot where Appleby throws the pick, and both Callaway and Brandon Powell basically have meltdowns, but they're not they're not like on-field meltdowns at, at themselves. Like you can feel the anger directed towards Appleby. You also saw this from Scarlett on several plays when he he kind of got beat on a a stunt and he's frustrated. And there's just a lot of frustration which you expect to see. You don't want to see that channeled towards the team and towards your own teammates, especially when Appleby had played such a good game. You know, if you're if you're Callaway, you had one of the worst games of your career, even though you had a great productive game as a wide receiver, but you put the team in bad positions twice. Uh, so I really hated to see that. And with the combination of the trash talk and sort of getting exposed on national television and losing your mystique, this is a big week for their confidence. The thing I love is how McElwain is handling the individual responsibility part. Yes. I love that. I love how he says, hey, look, you can trash talk or you can not trash talk, but there's consequences to your actions. And you will have to decide if that's a good or bad program. I think that's how you raise adults. I think that's how you teach people to think for themselves. And I love how he's handling that as opposed to saying, oh, it was terrible. We're never going to do it again. He's like, yeah, we can do it again this week. I don't really care. It's all about maximizing your play. So we're going to find out what this team is made of this week. A team that wants to go places and realizes there's a lot in front of them is going to come out against Vanderbilt, uber-focused, and want to play one of the best games they have all season. A team that's still wallowing around and lingering with the loss and questioning who they are is going to play sloppy. So this weekend becomes interesting with regards to how we bounce back. Yeah, because some of them, I made some interesting comments after the game, looking ahead already, and I like that. So the reality is, as they said, everything's still on the table for this team. The East is still very much winnable. I look at our schedule, and there's not a SEC opponent that I'm looking at and saying we can't win that game. There's some difficult ones, Georgia, Arkansas. You know, We'll see about LSU. But, man, I, if Tennessee is who we think they are, they're going to lose a couple games here. They've got still games against Bama, Texas A&M. They've still got to play Georgia, even though Georgia looked like a mess. So, if they if the Gators play well moving forward, there's still a lot on the table for them. They can still have a really successful season. It doesn't negate everything they worked for. Or they could respond like like and you know petulant and I don't think they will. But you're right. We'll get a good glimpse of this team's mental makeup heading into this weekend. And Tennessee has this week they're at Georgia, and then they're home against Alabama, and then they're at A and M. And the rest of their schedule is very, very easy 
in retrospect after that. Yeah, this Georgia game could, you know, coming off this huge emotional win where they finally break this streak and they got Bam up ahead, seeing Georgia get blanked like that, they could very much overlook them. Uh, it would be an interesting test for them, too. Yeah, we'll know a lot in the next the next three weeks. You could almost say the East will <clears throat> probably almost certainly be decided then. But right now, heading into this week, uh, there's plenty of reason to, to think that you have a shot at making it to the uh, the championship. And you also have to realize that every team says that when they have one loss. So you have a great shot of not making it either. Talk doesn't really mean anything. But I think this team is plenty talented enough to be able to, to accomplish that. All right, Alan. Appleby... Got a lot of talk on our show last week, probably more than national media gave him and elsewhere. After the first half, I felt like, hey, this is going to be great. Everyone on the podcast feels these guys are geniuses. They've told me that Appleby was going to light the world on fire. Then the second half, the offense gains like three yards for you know an hour of real time and things go downhill. Given the overall context of the game, do we have a quarterback controversy in Gainesville? I want to say a bold statement here and say maybe. I wouldn't have thought that headed into this game, but... I- it, Appleby's an interesting character because he has the arm strength that Del Rio doesn't have. He made some really incredible throws. But you saw his deficiencies, You know whether that those are long-term deficiencies or just in the moment, where he had trouble getting us in and out of the huddle. A couple of times we had to use a timeout. McElwain alluded to some missed signals getting put in, whether that's on him or the coaching staff, we're not really sure. And so some of the small things that you know Del Rio does well efficiency, getting the team moving, leadership. I'm not sure that Appleby does, but if he plays really good against Vanderbilt, the team starts to click, that's going to be a really interesting situation. What about you? I think all those thoughts are right on the money. And the Vanderbilt game then essentially becomes his audition because Luke does do those little things you mentioned much better than Appleby does. Appleby, from what I've seen, uh, and Vanderbilt, you always have to have two data points. We always say that. One data point means nothing. i got to see the second one. But from what we know about him, scouting-wise, we nailed it in the podcast last week when we said, hey, he's, he can be inaccurate, uh, which he was on a couple of easy throws, and, and he can be erratic. The yeah. moment can get to be where he sort of had that flashback. I think he felt like he was back in Peru and he's Purdue, and he's running around gunslinging. It was like PTSD. And then he brought himself back and led a really nice drive that really was not inconsequential in that game. That was still a football game then. Um, yeah, you needed an onside kick or a few things to happen, but... That was not a drive where it was an exhibition game anymore. So he showed that he can bounce back and lead the team down there. But hard to know. I like Appleby much, much better as a thrower than Luke Del Rio. If we had an offensive line that was good, I would anoint Appleby the guy right now because he can make all the throws. Del Rio cannot. But there is a real aspect to running the team well, understanding the plays, getting everyone lined up, and being the leader. And it seems to be clear from everything that we hear that Luke Del Rio is did the unanimous leader of this team. And therefore, McElwain might feel like it's in his best interest to play Luke Del Rio because Luke Del Rio has eligibility. Yes, Appleby will be on after this year. He's a graduate transfer. And that's where I'm going with that. For me, if Appleby was the same year as Del Rio, I'm making Appleby my quarterback right now. And I'm going to live with a few of his downsides. Uh, I still tend to want to make Appleby the guy because he can make more throws. But I realize that there is a very real consideration to be made there. That if these guys are kind of the same, one guy has eligibility, one guy doesn't. Uh, that's a tough decision. So it, it's going to be very interesting to see how that plays out. This week will tell us a yeah, lot. Yeah, this could though. be a moot point. He could come out and wet the bet against Vanderbilt, and it's like we can't wait for Luke Del Rio to come back. We've seen this before where everyone was super excited about Treon Harris getting in there, and <laughs> we all saw how that turned out. You know, The backup quarterback is always the most popular guy on the team. Yeah, and so Treon, we'll he is not, no. but 
like we said, I'm just as high, if not more high on him than I was last week. This week's going to be the one. We'll talk about it next Monday, and I will be able to give you a strong answer as to when I think he is and should be the guy against LSU. For sure. Let's do a couple quick keys to victory here. What do the Gators need to do to come out victorious against Vanderbilt? Well, we're better, like we said, in every single statistical category. Um, Vanderbilt's got some momentum. It's an early game. They'll be a little bit punchy. So you want to go to the easy thing and say turnovers, but I'm not. I'm not going to do that. I'm actually going to. I'm going to look at the defense entirely. I think that the the defense is is going to have it upon themselves to play really well in the first half of this football game, um, and if they do, I, I think that we'll we'll win the game. So the key is to stop Vanderbilt's running game. That's the real key. If we come out and we shut down Webb and we shut down that running game, uh, they're not going to be able to pass the ball very effectively. Um, but what I really want to watch for is how we play defense. Are we going to sit in man press cover one the whole game? Uh, you know, what's Vanderbilt going to do to try to counter that? So I'll enjoy the chess match. But I think the key is stopping their run statistically. That's really the only thing that they could do to make it a low-scoring time of possession type game. And if we take that away, uh, then you know we'll be in really good shape. And of course, it always seems like a cop out to talk about turnovers because that will change any game. Yes. But I think if we limit their running game, we limit their ability to hold the ball for a long time and slow the game down, which is what they want. You know that that's like the main main key to this game. I think that's very important, and I think part of that is going to be what do we do with Tabor and Wilson? Do we continue to trust them against a, an opponent? I think they should be able to shut down. Do we fix some of the problems on the back end where we're not exposing some of our lesser cover guys? I'm just really interested in how they game plan for this because I mean, they still have you know an incredibly talented set of corners. How do those guys respond? Are they confident? Are they ball hawking like they have been? They start to ugh, get a little nervous out there. And here on offense, I want to, I want to see us. I think be able to run the ball well, and that not because I want to chew up the clock, but I think Vanderbilt is probably going to do something similar to what Tennessee did. And can we run the ball effectively? Not when they know that we're doing it. I, I want to. I don't want to like we got to grind them out. But can the offensive staff put us into position where when we are calling runs, they're going to be successful? And so that will let me know, are they adjusting? Because Vanderbilt is going to, I assume, really try to limit us running the ball. Yeah, and they run multiple fronts. So we've seen what Del Rio struggled with, which was defenses running multiple fronts. And we'll see how Appleby handles that. We'll see how the offensive line handles that because the offensive line has struggled with that too. Uh, another point to note is is Quincy Wilson's play. So he's a little bit banged up for whatever that means. But you heard Kiwan mention it and wanted to kind of sneak this in right here. Uh, we had a lot of conversations over the weekend that, that I feel like you know Quincy is the best corner in college football. It was interesting to hear Kiwan reiterate that. Um, it will be interesting to see then how Tabor responds. Because Tabor has been the guy. He's been the media guy. He's been the front guy. He's been the attention guy, even though I don't think he's maybe as talented as Wilson is. So big week for Tabor here. Big week for him to sort of regain his swagger. Um, I don't think that Vanderbilt's going to go at him at all. But he, he'd like to have a clean stat sheet game, I think, going into LSU. With that, let's take a few predictions uh, on this weekend. What do you got? This is a tough one to call because I think there's so many variables is Vandy going to show up and, and play some semblance of D? This has been, you know, defense under Derek Mason that has at times played well. They haven't been playing well so far. I'm going to hedge a little bit, um, and I'm going to go 27-17. That's a little tighter game than I think that most people are expecting for this. 
But I, I don't know. I don't get the sense that we're going to run up the score on Vandy. I think they're going to muddy up the game. I think they're going to bleed the clock on offense. So uh, a little bit lower scoring. I like 35-6. And I like that because it's partially hopeful that this team is more of the first-half team and not the second-half team that we saw. So I'm going to go 35-6 and hope that happens and hope that we're here for a happy Monday. Uh, let's go ahead and get to our Vandy guest, the voice of the Commodores. We are joined now by Joe Fisher, the voice of the Commodores, play-by-play guy for the University of Vanderbilt and longtime Nashville resident. So, Joe, thanks for being on today. Oh, Good to be with you. Thanks for having me. So, Joe, researching Vanderbilt, and of course any Florida Gator fan, sort of just thinks of Vanderbilt as a team that you play each year and then occasionally, you know, once every 30 years they'll beat us. But I was surprised to find that that coaching there, not surprisingly, is difficult, but that it was it was so difficult. Five winning seasons since 1982, two coaches since 1953 that have had a winning record. The average coach generally wins about 30% of his games. What makes it so difficult to win at Vanderbilt? Well, I would say it's probably not anything that's rocket science. I think anybody realizes that it's a small private institution in the in the midst of a conference that's filled with large state schools. Um, it, it's uh, it's an academic institution where academic standards are high, and so just the baseline to to be eligible to play, uh, you know, NCAA football is not good enough to get you into Vanderbilt. Um, it, it's not a, a university that has um, curriculum uh, that are set aside to hide athletes uh, where you can uh, go and take easy courses and graduate. That's not the way Vanderbilt works. Um, they don't have the tradition that, that many of the, the, the institutions in the SEC have, you know, in terms of victory. Now, if you go back, you know, to – uh, you know, the early years, if you go back to the 50s when Vanderbilt was really a dominant team, you know, in the Southeastern Conference in many ways, uh, they had it then, but they don't have it in the modern era, you know, in that regard. So, you know, when you put all of that together, you know, Vanderbilt is kind of a, in many ways, a specialized place. It's one where, uh, at least for the most part, a lot of the guys who come here to play football come here with an idea that they also want to get uh, they want to get their degree. They, they, they certainly, there are a lot of guys, and I think more so now than in recent, in, in previous years, come believing they can get to the NFL, and we've seen that with the number of guys we have in the league. Uh, but still, uh, primarily, a lot of the guys come here knowing that they want to have, you know, a quality education. That's a big part of why they come. What was the blueprint that James Franklin was able to use to be so successful for the years he was at Vanderbilt? Well, he, I think James was really, really good at being able to sell uh, his players on a mindset. He was able to get them to, to buy in to what he wanted, uh, to be able to get past the, um, uh, the idea that, that there could be an excuse for you not to win. You know, that, that, uh, that you know, just because for you know, what we were talking about a moment ago, there, there are a lot of people that have said, well, you know, you're a high academic institution. Nobody really expects you to, to win a lot. You know, win now and then, be competitive, and everybody's happy with that. Uh, James was able to kind of get past that and, and get players to to buy into the fact that they could compete. Um, he also he also timed it well. Uh, you know, when you think about it and you think about where the conference was at that time, um, you know, Florida was down, Tennessee was down, Georgia was down. 
uh, he hit it at the right time. I mean, everything kind of fell into place, and he was able to, I think, do a really good job of, of uh, hiring quality assistants uh, that did wonderful things, that coached these guys up, uh, that made them believe they could win. They put an offense together that could score. Bob Shoup was the defensive coordinator who's now doing a great job at Tennessee, as you guys know. Um, and, and so he was able to kind of put all of those pieces together and do it at the right time and make it work. So current coach Derek Mason, a little bit up and down so far in his time at Vanderbilt. Do you feel like he's on the hot seat at all? And what does he need to do to the season to keep his job, do you think? Well, I don't think we're talking about keeping a job or losing a job. I think he's he's done uh, – you know, when he, when he came here, uh, this is now year three for him. Uh, when he came in uh, after James uh, had gone, uh, really there was quite a turnover uh, in the roster. A lot of the players that were there three years ago had, had moved on. It was a veteran team at that time, and so – Derek kind of came in and, and in many ways started all over. Um, and, and so the other factor that he's had to do, I think, is kind of, you know, teach them his system and his style. I think you're seeing results from that now with a defense uh, that I think a lot of people around the league and around the country have a lot of respect for um, with the way they play. Now, now they've given up some yards points this year. They've had some injuries to deal with. But, but I think for the most part, you know, people look at, at Derek's defense and realize, you know, this is a this is a pretty formidable system uh, to have to deal with. So, you know, I, I think what they're trying to find right now is some consistency. Uh, you know, they've they have shown flashes. You know, with their wins over Middle Tennessee and over Western Kentucky, especially offensively, they've shown flashes of the ability to score. Um, they've got to find more consistent consistency defensively. Uh, one of the stats that is totally different from last year. Last year, Vanderbilt was among the worst teams in the nation uh, in, in production in the red zone. They, they would uh, get into the red zone and, and have turnovers and, and make mistakes. This year, they're 15 for 15 in the red zone. Uh, so that, that's that been a major turnaround in what they're doing here. So the growth process continues, but uh, I think people are realizing that you know, Derek has his his program and how he wants to do things and, and that they're kind of on track to making that work. So, very exciting win over Western Kentucky in overtime. Western Kentucky goes for two, doesn't get it. Vanderbilt comes out with the win. They enter this game two and two. Is the fan base excited to host this game against Florida? What's sort of the, the temperature of the the Vandy Nation right now? Well, well certainly uh, much happier now after the win. Uh, you, know, it, you know, being two and two and coming off the win as opposed to being one and three and limping into the game would be a lot different. I don't think there's any question about that. Um, so I think they're encouraged by that. Uh, I think they're in, really encouraged not only by winning the game, but the way they won it. Uh, you know, you know, guys, very few teams, you know, let's face it, in the country um, can have 62 seconds to go the length of the field with no timeouts to try to score to send the game to overtime and do it. And, and that's what they did. Uh, and, and then win the game in overtime, it, it's just not a way that Vanderbilt has traditionally won games. You know, they have not – come from behind in the final minute or two, you know, to get a win or to force an overtime and get a win. So I think folks are very excited about that. Excited about a young quarterback in Kyle Shermer who really was, you know, a general on the field on that drive. Uh, Excited about young players that not only stepped up to make plays but knew what to do, you know, knew how to get out of bounds, knew what to do in in those time situations. It was a team – 
that really came together and appeared to be very well prepared for that situation. And I think that's got a lot of Vanderbilt people fired up, and they're on, they're on an uptick right now getting ready for this. So carrying that momentum forward, Ralph Webb, Gainesville, Florida product. We talked a lot about him last year on the podcast. And then you just mentioned Kyle Shermer, sophomore quarterback who seems to be uh, on the upswing, getting better every single game. Who are two other players, either on the offensive or defensive side of the ball, that are going to have to have an impact game this weekend? Well, there, there are a couple of guys that come to mind. One is a true freshman receiver in Kalijah Lipscomb, uh, who is uh, by far our most explosive offensive player at the receiver position. Now, there is depth there with guys like Trent Shurfield and C.J. Duncan, uh, but, but Lipscomb is the guy that can be the over-the-top guy. He's the guy that can make the huge play for you, the home run play. And, and he's, a, he's a young man, a freshman out of New Orleans, played at Jesuit High School, so he played in the great in the Catholic League down there, which is terrific, um, and, and is very, very well suited, you know, to the SEC, and has kind of stepped in and become really kind of a go-to guy uh, very early on. So he he is a guy to look for. Uh, defensively, of course, Zach Cunningham uh, is the man at the linebacker spot among the leading tacklers in the conference last year. He's going to play on Sundays. I don't think there's any doubt about it. He is a sideline-to-sideline guy. He plays with aggression. He's a great tackler. Uh, he makes tackles for loss. He's a very instinctive player. Um, he's a disruptor. Um, he's a physical force. Um, so he, he's a guy whose name will be called, uh, I think, a lot on Saturday. Another guy defensively to look for is Oren Burks because he plays sort of a specialty position. Um, they created it for him. It's kind of, They call it the star position because he can line up as a linebacker, he can line up on the defensive line. He can line up in a nickel you know, package in the secondary. So he really – they can do anything from a 3-4 to a 4-3 to a 4-2-5. They do all those things defensively. And Birch is the guy that has to be accounted for. He's the guy that uh, opposing offenses have to figure out where he is. He's long. He's extremely long. He's fast. He's disruptive. Um, he, you know, he can be a game-changing kind of player if he has a big day. Is there a unit for Vanderbilt, either on offense or defense, that you like the matchup uh, for that, that maybe favors Vanderbilt? You know, it, it's interesting because I think there, there, are, um, there are unknowns, you know, coming into this game. Obviously, with Florida, you, you wonder, you know, if it's going to be uh, Appleby again at quarterback. Are they going to stick with that? I, you know, I think the Florida secondary is very good. Um, so you wonder if Vanderbilt's going to have the ability to throw against that secondary. Um, you know, Commodores have been kind of hot and cold passing. And so I think they're going to, you know, try to hopefully rely again on being able to run the football effectively with a combination of Webb and Blassingham. Blassingham is another guy that I think you need to pay attention to. He's a 6'2", 235-pound tailback. I mean, he, he is a big, strong uh, guy that you'll see, especially in short yardage situations, that he's a guy that can impact the game as well. Um, I think maybe the other area where the Commodores might have a bit of an advantage, uh, if Andy Ludwig, the offensive coordinator, can put it together, is utilizing the tight end. Uh, This is a team that really plays, at times, as many as five tight ends. Now, not all at the same time. Uh, But but they have five different guys that will rotate in. And Jared Pinckney is a guy that I think you might want to keep an eye on. He is an athlete. He's 250 pounds at 6'4". Big, strong, but he can move, has good hands, and he's a guy that they're really each week growing in confidence in. And if Florida doesn't account for the tight end position, Vanderbilt could certainly exploit that. 
Okay, can you give us a prediction for this weekend? How do you think it's going to go? And maybe, if you're willing to, put a score on it. Well, you know, I think what's interesting is, you know, the higher scoring game it is, I think the more it benefits Florida. So I, I think Vanderbilt is going to want to keep this, you know, low scoring as possible. I'll tell you guys, to be honest, one of the elements and factors into this is an early kickoff. Uh, you know, when you're kicking off to 11 o'clock Central Time, um, I think that's a factor. And I've had coaches tell me, a number of coaches, that have said that one of the constants that they believe that happens when you have the early kickoff, and even in basketball when you have the early tip-off, is that one team won't be ready. Uh, you can kind of look at it and see one team will not be dialed in and focused when that game starts. And whoever that team is is in trouble. So uh, I think a lot of it will, will kind of key on who's ready to kick off at 11 o'clock Central Time and be ready to play you know, at, at full bore. Um, I, I would tell you, you know, lower scoring game benefits Vanderbilt, higher scoring game benefits Florida. Uh, weather's supposed to be very good. I think it's, you know, not nearly as bad as it was weather-wise here. This past Saturday was brutal here. We played in Bowling Green um, in our game and kicked off at 3.30 Central Time. And, you know, I can tell you guys, we had um, uh, a clock that has a thermometer in our broadcast booth and at kickoff for the broadcast, it was 122 degrees in our booth. Um, so I don't think we're going to have anything near that uh, this Saturday. And I think the players are going to be very appreciative of that. should be a great day for football. So as a lifelong Nashville resident, a lot of Gator fans going up to the game. Uh, one of the highlights mm-hmm. is definitely spending time in Nashville. Could you give us, oh, yes. and I know this is going to be really hard to pick, could you give us your favorite restaurant, if you could pick just one, and your favorite thing <laughs> to do if you could pick just one, so the Gator fans have well, an idea me, of what yeah, to look for. Yeah, let me let me tell you, as as a lifelong uh, Nashville resident, I can tell you things have changed here in the past ten years, uh, and, and I say it because you know it, it used to be nobody went downtown. Uh, you know, everything was you know if you were going to go to music, you were going to go to Woodbird Cafe, which you certainly should do. And again, it's one of the great music venues in the country to go see in a small, intimate setting and see wonderful, wonderful music. And there are, there are a ton of places in town that have music that that is available to go and hear but what has changed over the last 10 years is now downtown nashville is a go-to place it is a viable you know there are a lot of people who fly in or 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 come in they stay downtown they don't get in their car again and there there is just a, a myriad of places in a i would say a 10 block area of downtown where you have great options for restaurants and music and entertainment and, and all kinds of things. That's been the biggest change in this city, uh, that downtown Nashville is now one of the really, really hopping places to go uh, to find really whatever you want, whether it's good food. And you can go from the high scale, the, the, you know, Bob's Chop House, uh, you know, at the Omni Nashville, which is marvelous, um, to some of the smaller places, to Rotier's Restaurant, which is not far from campus, which has the cheeseburger on French bread, which is about as good as you'll ever have. You know, if you just want that basic sandwich kind of situation, um, you have all those options available to you now that maybe 10 years ago uh, you didn't have. So I encourage Florida fans to come come on Friday and get here early enough where you can get out and get into the city and enjoy it because it really has become a very special place to go. He is Joe Fisher, voice of the Commodores. Joe, thanks so much for the time today. We enjoyed chatting with you. Great to be with you. Thank you very much. James, let's close the show by doing a little prediction game. Before we get to the big national games, let me ask you, UGA, Tennessee, who you got? 
I think Georgia is so bad. And I don't think Tennessee is that much better, but Georgia is so bad. I have to go with Tennessee in this one. I think they're going to be able to run the ball pretty well. So I'm going to say Tennessee 23, Georgia 14. Okay. I'm going to pick Tennessee too, but I think it's going to be close. I think it's going to come down right to the wire. Alabama favored over Kentucky by 34 and a half points. This is a conference game. That's just, crazy. Well, just illustrating what I think about the East. Until someone can convince me otherwise, it's the worst division in college football. And, and I mean, unless Kentucky conjures up some sort of miracle, we're going to learn that the East is really bad when Alabama just blows the doors off them as well. A Kentucky team that beat South Carolina, who's also in the East, so not really getting much better. Pretty rough. Okay, three big games of the day. Three top ten matchups. That hasn't happened in a while. Number seven, Stanford, at number ten, Washington. Are you buying the Washington preseason hype? I want to I wanna buy it, but they played a horrible game last week. I mean, they did not inspire confidence. Stanford played a thriller at UCLA, right down to the wire, going right at the end. Washington has a lot more starters, and it's at Washington, so I'm going to take them here. I don't believe in them. Uh, at this point, they really let me down last week. But I'm going to take them. More starters are playing at home. Stanford's got a young team coming of age. Yeah, I'm going to go with Huskies. I like Washington in this game. Feels like it's maybe the changing of the guard here in the Pac-10. We'll see where that storyline comes to fruition. Number eight, Wisconsin. Number four, Michigan. Wisconsin, a huge win over Michigan State, giving them some more legitimacy. How are you feeling? Michigan State, I thought, was a fraud. I sold them in the early preseason situation, mainly because they didn't have any starters returning. And that turned out to be true. I think Wisconsin is probably a little overvalued right now because LSU is really bad, as we've learned. So who is Wisconsin? We don't know. We're going to find out this week. They play a team that wants to play the same style as them. Uh, if you look at both of those teams on film, they look very similar. Really, they do. It, it's They're not that distinguishable. So if Wisconsin's for real, this game should be close. I'm not so sure they're ready for this moment, per se, but they have the best advantage in sports going for them, which is that they're yet another underdog no one's giving a shot to, and they have momentum. So could be interesting. Could be interesting. I think Michigan gets this done because they have to get it done if they're for real this year. But I think this could be a really fun game to watch. I don't know. I Michigan was one of my college football playoff picks. I think they might just crush Wisconsin. Like you said, strength on strength, and they can't match up unless some weird things happen. If Michigan is good as I think they are, then we're heading towards a mega, mega game against Ohio State. I think that's where we're headed. Third game, Louisville. Number three, Louisville. Continue to shred people at number five, Clemson, who's struggled more than people expected this year. I mean, everyone knows who I'm taking. I mean, it's Action Jackson all day, every day, twice on Saturday. That guy is unbelievable. Racked up, uh, what, five or six touchdowns again last weekend. Until somebody stops him, I'm going to ride him all the way. And I think Clemson has looked very average. Uh, this is a game that Clemson would, would obviously want to bow up and win. It's kind of the game they've been waiting for, if you will. But until proven otherwise, I'm all on that Lamar Jackson train. This game, I think, is going to be a lot closer than any other Louisville game. Uh, because that Clemson defense has surprised me. I didn't think they were going to be that good on defense considering how many people they lost. Could this be the game where Deshaun Watson and company finally light up? It seems like we've seen this story before with like a team that loses national championship or even wins and they come back returning a lot of players and they just can't put it together. I- I'm going to have to go with Louisville here because they've been so unstoppable and their defense has played really well. 
that's maybe the more surprising part for them. So pretty close there. Uh, okay, Florida. We hired a new athletic director, Scott Strickland from Mississippi State. Yeah, What's hot, your first impression? Hot off the presses. I think it's a smart hire because we're entering an era where we need to upgrade all of our facilities. And Jeremy Foley, as his last move, laid out this plan for a $100 million renovation of facilities. And if you want to do that, you have to fundraise. And Scott Strickland, by most Mississippi State alum standards, was like a miracle worker to get them to build what they built there. He just raised funds up out of the state of Mississippi, which you can imagine how hard that is to do for a city like Starkville. And he did it. And so how is he going to hire head coaches? Who knows? But I think they're primarily hiring him for his administration skill and his fundraising skill. He's kind of a dynamo in that. All I know is if he hires Dan Mullen, I will I will be the first to be outside with a pitchfork of his office because that would, that would kill me if that somehow happens. So hopefully... That will never happen, but I like the hire. Yeah, Jeremy hired a lot of coaches towards the end of his reign, both football and basketball, had to replace gymnastics, made a lot of, I think, key hires that hopefully Scott Strickland won't have to come in and clean house, right? I think stability is good in this sense, and if he can come in and provide it. We don't need a total maverick to reinvent what we're doing athletic. We're the best, I think, athletic program in the country, at least in the top five. So don't need a guy who's going to come in and create havoc. And so I, I don't know. I don't know this guy. I don't know. I'm not in the athletic director world, but I think I have faith in our current athletic department to make a right hire. And just a quick note, Stat Boy over here informing me that it's not the University of Vanderbilt. It's Vanderbilt University. Sorry to all our Commodore friends out there. I did know that. Quick slip up. And let's close this one out. Thanks, everybody, for listening. Hopefully everybody's recovered from this Tennessee game. We'll talk to you after Vanderbilt. Let's say you just bought a house. Bad news is, you're one step closer to becoming your parents. You'll proudly mow the lawn. Ask if anybody noticed you mowed the lawn. Tell people to stay off the lawn. Compare it to your neighbor's lawn. And complain about having to mow the lawn again. Good news is, it's easy to bundle home and auto through Progressive and save on your car insurance. Which, of course, will go right into the lawn. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company, affiliates, and other insurers. Discount not available in all states or situations.